Hey everybody, welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast with me, Thad Forrester. Thank you for joining me here for episode number 70 with returning guest Michael Yon, author and war correspondent. I'm going to share something with you from his Facebook page recently as an introduction. PTSD in Hong Kong, time to talk about this. PTSD is very real and can ruin lives. Most Americans who suffer PTSD did not get it from wars. Far fewer than 1% of Americans with PTSD got it from war-related combat. Uh, Leading causes are more mundane unless you are in that situation, such as domestic abuse, car accidents, fires, close calls with nearly terminal illness, rape, and other situations where you typically are in fear for your life or something extremely traumatic happens, such as a moral assault like rape, and there is nothing you can do about it. Example of cause... Trapped in a burning car and nearly burning to death, but the fire department got in there, got there in time. That is the stuff of PTSD. Everyone has a breaking point. I've read many articles and books on the topic. Much of my own life has taken me through situations that could lead to severe PTSD. Yet somehow, I am fine. The worst thing that ever happened in my life was the loss of my mother when I was seven years old. Her passing was extremely traumatic and it went downhill fast from there with violence directed toward me at times as a child as bad as almost anything I have seen on the streets of Hong Kong. Terrible. I'm going to skip through here a little bit, and uh, he says, Fast forward through some serious events, and finally I I landed in years of combat and wars and conflicts, and yet I am fine. I have some advice that I strongly believe will help. Number one, no alcohol. Number two, no drugs that are not prescribed or cannot be bought in a 7-Eleven, such as Panadol. Not familiar with that. Or whatever that stuff is that I eat after many hours on the streets in Hong Kong fighting. Number three, talk a lot with friends. Number four, sunlight. Get plenty of sunlight. Very important. Number five, walk, walk, walk. During the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, there were many deaths and terrible things. Children killed. That is the worst and very, very bothersome. People screaming, burning to death, shot in the face, shot in the stomach, shot, shot, shot. So many. Pick up body parts, knocking body parts out of trees with sticks. Horrific stuff. I would take some breaks from combat and go for long walks, like 200 to 300 miles. Go to Nepal, walk to Everest Base Camp. Did Annapurna Circuit a couple more times. At one point, I thought about walking from Florida to California, but there was no time, and I headed back to combat. I am fine. You can be too. Walk, talk. Walk, talk. Sunlight. Stay away from the alcohol and chemicals. You will become a worthless person. He continues with more just walking, talking, sunlight, walk very far, talk with people that you know and trust. He closes with saying, Some Hong Kongers who have asked me about PTSD seem upset by my responses, as if I am unsympathetic. The opposite is true. I am extremely empathetic and sympathetic and have known numerous people who have shot themselves. I am saying clearly that we must set the expectation that we are going to treat and beat back PTSD and win. So he has a little bit more to say about that. But that's my introduction to Michael Yan from a recent Facebook post. And let's get back uh, with Michael and find out what's going on in Hong Kong. The show, I first had you on episode 13, so I would encourage the listeners to go back and listen to that back from about three years ago. Um, you know, you're often called a war correspondent. That's what I called you previously. What What is the title that you prefer? What best suits you? Actually, the most accurate term is just author. And in some circumstances, I'm certainly a very serious war correspondent. And I would say that's the same with, say, let's say soldiers. There's sometimes people are a soldier for like two years or five years or ten or whatever. And then the rest of their life, they're not. So, uh, but when I, my war correspondent days clearly are not over. 
but I'm not always acting as a war correspondent. Sometimes I'm writing about other things. For instance, The Bomb Boys, the book which is not yet published about juveniles and explosives, you know, making IEDs and that sort of thing. It's not a how-to guide, by the way. It's a preventative guide. Uh, so that's certainly not in the war correspondent realm, although uh, a lot of my war experience and military experience is going into that book, as, as well as a lot of other research. Uh, but so war correspondent, as, as it pertains to Hong Kong, I'm there as a war correspondent. Certainly, and it, it looks like a war to me, and so I've been, I got very behind in, in what was going on over there, and I finally, I started paying attention to you on Instagram and Facebook, and that's where I'd like to start, especially somebody like me who doesn't keep up with the news regularly. I kind of had to make that a lower priority of my life now, and um, what in the world is going on in Hong Kong, and then why did you decide to get there? Because it's pretty serious what's happening. Yes, it's extremely serious. In fact, it's easily the most important thing going on in the world. Of course, now we've had the uh, Iran flare-up, which could go to full kinetic war at any point, or maybe it'll continue to simmer, and they'll just continue their terrorism, uh, you know, almost unopposed. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but on the, the truly global sense, the most important thing going on right now is clearly Hong Kong and Taiwan. And, you know, the latest huge flare-up in Hong Kong started in 2019 in June, right? And I was here in Chiang Mai in Thailand in my office where I'm at now, and I was researching uh, the Chinese information war, actually. So I was, in for, I was uh, researching the Chinese information war and their, uh, you know, Quest for domination regional uh, through, uh, throughout Asia and also their influence campaigns uh, throughout the world, whether it's Africa or South America, United States is heavy. And, uh, and so when June kicked off, the, you know, the uh, extradition bill you may have heard about, what, what, you know, uh, basically it's a bill in Hong Kong that would allow uh, prisoners to be extradited over to mainland China to face trial, which is like completely ridiculous. To put that in context, that's like saying somebody in, say, New York or California should be able to be extradited to China for trial. That sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, for us, that sounds absolutely, you mean, you mean they can just be like forcibly, you know, <laughs> Uh, taken on an airplane over to Beijing? Yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. And then China will try to bookend that and contextualize it by saying, no, actually Hong Kong is part of China, and which it's not. They've sold this one country, two systems so well that even a lot of the Hong Kongers buy off on it. Uh, and a lot of them are just being pragmatic. They think that there's no other choice because China is huge and Hong Kong is small, and that's true. However, they don't most of them don't want it. Uh, they're the ones that have accepted it, just have accepted it in the in the way that someone accepts that they're marooned on a desert island, right? You know, they don't want to be there, but they're there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's the same with Hong Kong, uh, with you know uh, China. Uh, and so China is trying to, you know, in 1997 the handover occurred between the British uh, colonizer and uh, Chinese and the Chinese colonizer. You know, China always loves to say, you know, the, all these colonizers, the Russians and the British, and the biggest colonizer in the world is easily China. 
at this point. The United States doesn't colonize anymore. Britain, of course, is collapsing uh, one step at a time. Uh, you know, even Scotland might break off any time, you know, who knows. Uh, and, and uh, it, you know, Germans no longer colonize. Hopefully they'll never do it again. Uh, and, you know, in the various countries, France has still got a few things going on here and there. But uh, for the most part, other than the Western world doesn't really colonize anymore, certainly not in the old respects. But China is on the march. And in order to to succeed, they're trying to push out their their diaphragm, let's say, taking Taiwan, taking Hong Kong, take the South China Sea. And they're using their influence campaign to split apart alliances between, for instance, Korea and Japan and Japan and the United States and Japan and Korea, South Korea. Right. And and that's something I've written about since 2014. And some of what I've written about is now come to pass. Like in 2014, I started to publish there will be a break between Japan and uh, South Korea and it will be over the comfort women issue. Right. Mm-hmm. And the comfort women issue is this. You may have heard of it before, but that's actually part of a huge information campaign. And this is something I've researched myself in 13 countries, including the United States, Australia, and the rest of the countries are all in Asia, such as Malaysia, Indonesia, Taiwan, uh, actually 14, I guess, if you include Hong Kong. I've researched it in I hear a helicopter flying over. Hey, it's a Huey. Can you hear it? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. It's actually a Huey. I can hear. You know the sound of the old sound of the Hueys? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but, huh. You know, yeah, because, you know, uh, I'm in Thailand, in northern Thailand, and they still use some Hueys. But yeah, is there a U.S. So base over there close by or what? Uh, no, there's no U.S. bases in Thailand. Uh, but And actually, the U.S. doesn't use the Hueys anymore in our military. Uh, the Hueys that are here are in the Thai military. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to fly right over my house. It used to fly over all the time in my old house in Chiang Mai. And I mean, like right over my house, and it would because my house was right on the flight path. And as you know, it would happen only during interviews. Yeah, yeah. Like, or while you're sleeping. Interview, <laughs> and it would be like Black Hawk Down. Not, not like Black Hawk Down. It would be like, uh, you know, Apocalypse Now with the helicopters going over. <laughs> I'm like, sorry about that. I'm near an air base. But, uh, but, uh, but the, uh, yeah, so they still use some of those old helicopters, and they're great helicopters. I used to jump out of those in the Army. But the, um, so, yeah, so when it comes to the to, to the Chinese information war here in Thailand, Thailand is fully within that economic, that ecosystem, that information warfare ecosystem is. I mean, this is basically behind enemy lines here in Thailand, to put it, uh, uh, you know, honestly, it's just uh, and I love Thailand. I've been here for years, uh, but this is there's so much under the influence of Thailand. For instance, Thailand is almost, you know, predominantly a Buddhist country by far, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, and so, and the, the Dalai Lama was very good friends with King Rama Knight. He passed away a couple of years ago, an excellent friend of the United States and just an excellent man. So he would let the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, come to Thailand and that sort of thing because Dalai Lama was an honored guest here. But with the increase of the Chinese information machine, uh, Thailand became off limits for Dalai Lama. And so, and this is a Buddhist country. And of course that's a different type of Buddhism, but still Dalai Lama was highly respected here. A friend of mine, She's a, a Thai journalist. 
she did a um, interview with Dalai Lama, right? And um, and it aired. And the Chinese embassy got and the Chinese got so upset they sent a member of their embassy down to talk with the Hong Kong not not Hong Kong I'm sorry with the Thai government and with her office and like you know don't don't you know put Dalai Lama on television here anymore right so I mean, you never see you never see Dalai Lama on the news at all in Thailand I I, I bring that up to my Thai friends and I'll tell them you are because the Thais generally look at the Hong Kong rebellion if you will whatever you want to call it it's an insurgency if you but they'll look at that and they characterize it as the hong kong people are being bad they're fighting against their their family they'll call you know mainland family hmm. and and um and you know and, and that they're being bad and, and and anyway i've studied the chinese information more so much that i see that they're using the normal talking points and it's just because uh, thailand is not taiwan but thailand is so far uh Inside of the, the Chinese information ecosystem, that Thais don't—they don't see a different aspect of it. They only not—I mean, the educated ones do, but a lot of them don't. They just say, "Oh, Hong Kong bad. Why is Hong Kong doing this?" You know, uh, uh, so that the, the information warfare—you can never—you can never underestimate its power. It's as powerful as having aircraft carriers. It's massively important, and and China is very good at it. So, will you? explain the because because i guess before you got there there were some what i think we would call some like rallies or protests maybe a million people then it was a two million estimates i mean it just started rapidly growing what did you see when you got there and then also i, I to put this in context too the ccp the chinese communist party you know what really what are they and what's their history, and how would you compare them to other maybe um, regimes throughout history? What to talk about first? I think <laughs> it's important to talk about CCP first. Uh, the CCP is a Chinese Communist Party. It's led by Xi, often called Pooh Bear, which they hate in China to call him Pooh Bear because they hate anybody that will insult their dear leader, right? Okay. And so uh, the Chinese Communist Party was formed, uh, of course, uh, many years ago before World War II. And then they had, you know, huge fights with Kuomintang and, and this sort of, there's all kinds of things happened, as you know, in history. It's a, it's a big story. But the bottom line is co Chinese communist power took charge. And after World War II formed the People's Republic of China, PRC, right? And, uh, and, and so the Republic of China, the Kuomintang, went over to Taiwan, right? And so uh, now, you know, and they would call themselves a government in exile, right, over in Taiwan. Meanwhile, the PRC is like, no, you're a runaway, you're a renegade province. They're saying, you know, Taiwan's an island. I'm talking about Taiwan now, not Thailand, because Americans often mix those two up. They're completely okay. different countries. They speak completely different languages. They have very, very different cultures. It's like the difference between, say, you know, uh, 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 Americans and Germans or something. I mean, it's vastly different. It just has similar sounding names. And so, um, uh, yeah, so, so now, you know, through the years, of course, China was in, uh, very despotic, uh, leadership under the Chinese Communist Party, under Mao, and did massive genocide, of which, I mean, it dwarfed anything that Hitler did. It dwarfed anything that Stalin did. In fact, it's bigger than Stalin and Hitler combined. So in other words, the top genocidist, if you will, in the world 
was the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, so when people, you'll hear Hong Kongers call them Chai Nazis all the time. And for, for those who, uh, you know, just call everything a Nazi that they don't like, uh, they're, you know, 99% of the chance they're completely wrong and lose credibility. But in the case of CCP, it's absolutely accurate. And in fact, Nazis were nothing nearly as bad as, as uh, the Chinese Communist Party. So the Chinese Communist Party, of course, in the in the early 70s from the United States, you know, we used, we actually in Tibet, you know, they took over Tibet in the 50s. And then the United States began. Uh, I've actually been conversing uh, in the last few days with a very good friend of mine who's a, a Tibet specialist. We may go back over there together, not to Tibet. I haven't been there in years, but over to uh, Nepal and India, where many of the Tibetan exiles live. But and when when uh, you know China invaded Tibet uh, and tried to say, hey, this is old Chinese territory, and of course then you end up with Tibetans all over California and all over India, all over uh, uh, Nepal, all, and just many places. Uh, and then we we actually the United States uh, supported an insurgency in Tibet, which very few people know about. Actually, I came across it by accident. In Nepal, because I spent a year up there, I was up in this village. And anyway, I came across that we had had this insurgency up there, that, which we is with the Kampa people. They're called Kampa, right? They're very good horsemen. They were good with weapons. So the special forces and CIA were training the Kampas people up in Colorado, right? And hmm. uh, and and then we were infiltrating them back through Nepal into Tibet, and they were basically waging an insurgency. Not basically, they were straight up raging waging an insurgency, and. Uh, Tibet. And actually, if you look at it, it was quite, you know, I spent two years in Afghanistan. It was very similar to the Afghan. And, and in this case, though, the Pakistan would be Nepal. You know, Nepal borders Tibet. And so we were, you know, freely bringing in the compass there, and then they would go up and fight. And then when we came to the normalization in the 70s, uh, you know, under Kissinger and Nixon, we ended the compass, we, we didn't end the compass, but we ended our support for the compass in that insurgency, right? So we just left them hanging, and then they became bandits, as often happens. Uh, and so, um, but the bottom line is, uh, then China, of course, through the years, uh, began just, you know, growing in leaps and bounds economically. I mean, it took a while, it was a long start, but finally they got going. Yep. And so now they are what they are now, the second largest economy in the world. And growing very aggressively, and their their very primitive and despotic uh, ways are still very much intact in the Chinese Communist Party leadership. Right now, uh, like the Taiwanese people, not when I when I talk about Chinese, I'm talking specifically about mainland Chinese, and very specifically about the uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Because when you talk about Chinese, that's like talking about Arabs or Caucasians, like what is a Caucasian? Yeah, right. right. Caucasian is, Caucasian is what a Norwegian, a German, a Russian. You know what I mean? It's like all these different things, right? And the same with Chinese. They'll, they've tried to, to make an ethno identity out of Han Chinese, but in reality, it's like trying to define Arabs or Caucasians or something. It's actually quite difficult, and really, there's no definition that really stands up to serious scrutiny among educated people or people that are educated on that topic, right? And it's the same with Chinese. They they try to 
I mean, not Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party is what I'm specifically referring to, because Chinese that live, say, in my town here in Chiang Mai, I mean, I'm, I'm from Florida, but, but, uh, but, uh, but that, so it's not really my town, but, uh, my state is Florida, but, but the Chinese that live here are not part of the CCP generally. I mean, some have moved here, but, uh, but, you know, or the Chinese that live in Malaysia and have for generations or have in Africa lived for generations or the United States where they started coming over, especially, well, you know, in different waves, like in the 1840s and then the 1860s and that sort of thing, building railways and different things. Uh, those are completely split off. You know what I mean? They're not, they're not like Chinese anymore. They've been in America longer than most Caucasians have. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, my family actually came in 1609. My mother's did, but most, most Americans came much later than that. And yep. many Chinese came in the 1800s and about the mid 1800s, right? So, but now what's interesting is, was with the Chinese Communist Party and their fantastic racism, they, claim dominion over basically genetics. They, they, they're very clear that any Chinese around the world of, of Chinese descent owes loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party based on race. And then this is important because then they try to expand, expand and expound upon that by saying, and all these people are actually Chinese, the people who live in Malaysia, Indonesia, and you know, uh, here in Thailand. San Francisco, Boston, all these Chinatowns across America, they're trying to say, you owe us because you're one of us, which, you know, obviously can lead to some, I mean, it's ethnocentricity taken to extreme. It's basically the, 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 you know, Hitler type stuff, quite literally, you know, the, the, the Aryan race or whatever. But in this case, they're, they have this Han identity. Uh, and so, you know, you see, so you see, um, China, using that same framework to say and hong kong is ours and taiwan is ours because in one if you listen closely they'll say it very often they'll say hey we're the same family you're chinese we're chinese we share genes you know like that's the most nazi thing to say in the world so like you're my government because i got the same color skin uh, get real you know it's like that the germans could claim that about a lot of americans hey we're white you're white uh you're german we'd be like uh no we got guns you know what I mean? It's like, and so that's what you've got in Taiwan right now. So you've got mainland Chinese and the Chinese Communist Party saying Taiwan is a renegade province, and uh, and they're Chinese they're Chinese ethnically anyway. They're ours. It just makes no sense. And they're they saying the same thing about there. Hong Kong, then, right? Absol- absolutely. Okay. Remember, in Hong Kong, they speak a different language. They speak Cantonese. You know what I mean? That's very. It's a completely different language. It's not Mandarin that the that the uh, Chinese communists, uh, or that, you know, mostly, well, actually, the, the mainland Chinese, you know, although they have, they advertise that they're very uh, inclusive to different ethnicities, because, you know, China is filled with huge numbers, huge diversity, and it's a coral reef of ethnicities, right? And, uh, but they, uh, oh, good Lord, I mean, I could talk about this for weeks. I mean, the, 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 the fact is, that China is just on the march and the ultimate target to take out is the United States because we're the only thing really standing between them in the world. You mm-hmm. know, and, and so many people in the world and the United States don't realize that. I mean, for instance, when it comes to Hong Kong, where I've spent just spent six months in the fighting, I'm not actually taking a break, but I'm in my office in Chiang Mai to finally catch up. You know, you got 
normal life admin stuff, and then I'm returning to the fight. You know, this is a huge, hugely important uh, struggle that's going on in Hong Kong right now. A lot of Americans don't realize that the only country that's really stood up to China is the United States, period. Nobody else has really done it. You get other people here and there, you know, coming out and him and Han, but the United States just, you know, both the House and the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, pushed through the Human Rights and Democracy Act in Hong Kong. And since June, they finally passed it right around Thanksgiving when President Trump finally signed off. So the House passed it, Senate passed it, and then President Trump signed it, uh, I think it was Thanksgiving Day. I was in Hong Kong. It was a huge celebration for Hong Kongers. And I was incredibly happy, and I'm still incredibly happy. But we stand alone. It's the United States. You know, so many people are like, oh, look at the United States. You're going to stand alone. It's like, guess what? We're the only country that just stood up to China. Nobody else joined us, right? Yeah. Sometimes you just got to have the badass United States go, you know what? We're Americans. We're taking a stand. Mm-hmm. And that's what we find. That's what we've done. We need to take more of a stand. I, I was just talking with, I just did a huge conference call about, I don't know, four days ago, you know, three days ago or so. And, you know, Senator Marco Rubio, I'm from Florida, so and Marco Rubio is a Florida senator, and also Rick Scott's a Florida senator. I've briefed his staff before, but I just did this big conference call, and I was briefing, and, and members of uh, and Marco Rubio's staff were there. And, and I was saying that to them, like, we're the only country, and a lot of that's coming from my state, Florida, of all places, on the other side of the planet from, from Hong Kong. Both of my senators stood strongly on the side of Hong Kong. And I'm so happy and proud of that. You know, usually we're all complaining about our governments and whatnot, but I'm actually, I'm not angry at Florida government at all. I think it's a pretty doggone good government, especially as governments go. And, you know, my two senators stood resolutely behind uh, Hong Kong and were a couple of the more influential and energetic figures, let's say, on, uh, you know, getting this Human Rights and Democracy Act passed and continuing to take it in next steps. The United States has stood alone on that. But it's, and it's very important. A lot of Americans don't realize that we are in the gun sites because if China can knock us down to a you know, second biggest, third biggest economy in the world, they will be brutal about it. And, um, and I can tell you from my substantial experience around the world, I've spent more than half of my life in other countries, in 75 other countries, right? I spent more than half of my life uh, in Europe or the Middle East or around Asia, so many countries, right? And I can tell you a lot of – most of these countries are, are going to side with the big dog. Whoever they think is the biggest dog is going to side. So in other words, if you use a, a chess metaphor, if you're playing chess, once you take out you know, uh, you know, a few big pieces, the biggest one being the queen would be the United States – then all these other pawns are just going to side with that new queen. You don't just, yeah. they don't, in other words, they, they don't just remain pawns that you'll have to pick off. They switch teams, right? Like the Koreans. I've published this before. It really angers Koreans, but it's very clear that the Koreans are, will not stick with us on any, I mean, some will, uh, but, but it's very clear that as a block, the Koreans will side with whoever the big dog is, right? And I'm talking about South Korea. And if right now they still see the United States as the big dog, but we're heavily challenged by China, and our responses have, up until Trump, love him or hate him, Trump is giving a bloody nose to 
to Xi and CCP, and he is hurting uh, the prestige of the Chinese Communist Party yeah. and Xi. But there's a, a huge amount of the pieces, let's say, on the board, one of them being South Korea, a key piece that will – they will side with whoever they think the big dog is, right? Even if they don't side with them, they'll, they'll – and they will completely turn against us. I'm quite sure of that. I, I pay very close attention to different cultures. You can't understand what's going on here by just trying to be logical about things because the, the human world doesn't work on logic. You know what I mean? It works on other – programs and uh one of which of course is you know the many religions and the many cultures and and the korean culture tends to side with the big dog and so china has for years targeted korea and trying to split them off from japan and the united states and they use the comfort women issue that i've written about since 2014 that's an issue that they you know they they harp on and they finally you know because the big defense triangle in asia the the biggest most important part of this, our defense ecosystem here is the defense agreements and cooperations between China, Korea, and the United States, right? And then we've got others, of course, Australia and whatnot. But the really bulwark there is China, Korea. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Japan, Korea, and the United States. Japan, Korea, and the United States. And so China has focused their efforts on splitting the different legs here. Splitting Japan, Korea, splitting Korea, United States, and splitting Japan, United States. They have not succeeded on Japan, United States. Our relationship is as strong now as it ever was. In fact, I think it's actually, it seems to be getting stronger. But we have a very good relationship with Japan. But when it comes to Korea, uh, you know, that, that's a piece on the board that can go either way. Right now, it's still, you know, there's a lot of Koreans that are highly pro American, uh, but but at the end of the day, uh, that's a contested piece, and, and China has been working it, and they've been trying to split Japan as well, the, the Japanese-Korean uh, relationship, and they've succeeded very largely. For instance, in 2019, there was huge boycotts against Japanese products, and, and it's all coming down to this comfort women issue, which China puts huge money in. We don't know how much money they put into it, but what we can see is that it's huge. I've researched this in 13 different countries, or 14 if you want to include Hong Kong. I'm talking about the comfort women issue, the quote-unquote World War II sex slaves. Uh, this is, people might say, why is World War II sex slaves have anything to do with today? Because China, CCP, uses history to as a weapon, right? Just as we see in other parts of the world, too, say in, in the Israel-Gaza area and whatnot. History... You know, the, you know, these big history fights that happen and unfold around the world where people go, hey, we were here first, blah, blah, blah. Well, China does that with great effect, not just, you know, uh, not, you know, land claims only, but also with you know, grievances. They, they look for fault lines between different cultures, right, which is an old, you know, insurgency guerrilla warfare sort of thing that, that the United States has done. I mean, when I was in special forces, this is like. You know, in, you know, unconventional warfare 101 is to find, you know, fault lines within your your enemy's own social mm -hmm. structures within their country, right? And uh, and you know, one of those fault lines between in, between allies is that Koreans have a lot of animosity. Not all of them. A lot of them get along, but with with Japanese, right? And so what the the um, the the uh, 
Chinese have done since the early 90s is build up this resentment from World War II issues and just put huge amounts of effort into it, making musicals, making museums. I've been to a lot of them uh, uh, sponsoring books, sponsoring movies, sponsoring, oh, unbelievable amounts of stuff. And so then we end up with this huge information war ecosystem that is so big that you can't tell you're in it. It's like the matrix, right? So if you go, wait a minute, this comfort women World War II issue is nonsense. There were actually comfort women, but the idea that they, I mean, comfort women was real. They're called Ianfu in Japanese language, and the brothels were called Ianjo. That was actually real. But but uh, prostitution was legal and, and, and that sort of thing, and, and the women were, were actually making a lot of money off of it. But, uh, but the sex slave narrative didn't actually, believe it or not, it did not kick off in, in World War II. It kicked off in the 1980s, and it really kicked off – actually, arguably, it kicked off in 1978 with a Japanese uh, communist uh, uh, politician – named Yoshido Seiji, he wrote a book and said the Japanese had kidnapped, I think, 203 women or something like that on the island of Jeju in South Korea. I actually went there and researched this. And so that's where it really started was 1978 when he came out with that book. He said they kidnapped these women and made sex slaves out of them. And then that had the world up in arms, or it had the Japan-Korea world up in arms. Historians and journalists like got on airplanes and flew to Jeju, and they're like, oh, it didn't actually happen. And so they called him out on it, and Yoshida Seiji, the author of that book, said, oh, yeah, I made some of those things up. You have to make up stuff to sell a book, is what he said, right? And so so everybody's like, what? You dog? You know, there's no statute of limitations on war crime. If people had kidnapped and raped women like that, I mean, they could be hanged still, right? And so... Um, and then, so he's like, okay, and then he admitted to it, and then in about 1983 or so, he wrote another book, My War Crimes, and uh, published that, and then it started getting some traction. And this is important, what I'm going to tell you if you follow the timeline here. So we're in the 80s now, and remember, in the 80s, most people had never heard of, like, Rape of Nanjing or any of this stuff. This is all, like, did you ever hear about that when you were growing up? You no. know what I mean? Unless you, no. unless you grew up in the 90s, because that's when it... So, Let's take this through the 80s. So through the 80s, he came out with his second book, and then the second largest newspaper in the world, the Asahi Shimbun, started – they published 50-some-odd stories about it, 53 or 57, I don't remember. But it was over 50 stories, and based on his books and saying, look at all these bad things it did. Well, the, the actual journalist who was doing that, his name was Umora. He was married to a Korean woman, and her mother was actually in part of the information war we found in our research, right? That's, which is pretty wild. And so later he was discovered and he was fired, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, he was only fired in 2016, I think. I don't remember. It was something like that. But um, uh, And so his name was Umora, U-E-M-U-R-A, Umora, right? And so he, so he published all these uh, articles in the Asahi Shimbun, the second biggest paper in the world. It dwarfed the New York Times, absolutely dwarfed the New York Times because Japanese read a lot of newspapers. And but they had a relationship with New York Times, so these these stories also started bleeding out from Asahi Shimbun to newspapers around the world because Asahi Shimbun's very well recognized, right? So now you've got the nucleus of a, an information war forming. Now, Poland's going on in the 1980s, you know, solidarity and and this that and the other is mm -hmm. going on, and and uh, and so that's that'll play into this later. But on the other part, not the other side of the world, but almost the quarter way around the world. Uh, but then, you know, that 
that, you know, the solidarity movement is one of the things that started spurring more Chinese to rise up and go, hey, we should have democracy too, because Poland, what Poland was doing was infectious as well, right? It was, their courage was infectious. And when Poland was standing up to the USSR, people were like, yeah, look at solidarity. That's unbelievable. This is like the, the little dog standing up to like a pack of wolves, you know what I mean? And, uh, and winning and winning, you know, slowly, yeah. successfully, but through grit and determination and a lot of setbacks I and mean, very imperfect fight, to put it lightly, in the Polish one, right? So that caused that and other things caused uh, more uprising in China. So on the day that, you know, Polish were celebrating uh, independence from Soviet Union, that was June 4th, 1989. You know what happened on June 4th, 1989? That was Tiananmen Square Day. Tiananmen Square Day. Tiananmen Square Day, when Chinese were rising up against the, uh, the, the communist government, and China slaughtered thousands of Chinese students and others. We don't, nobody knows how many. It wasn't all in Tiananmen Square. It was distributed throughout uh, China and different places. And, and so, so this is very important. Tiananmen Square, June 4th. 1989. Let that soak in for a minute. This is a real inflection point in the information war. The world go. A lot of Americans go. Chinese Communist Party did the Tiananmen Square massacre and nothing happened to them. They're wrong. The Chinese Communist Party almost fell apart. It caused a huge amount of problems within China, and uh, power plays and the and the it almost killed the Chinese Communist Party. Right. A lot of Americans don't realize that, but it was a close call. So and the world was very angry at China, at CCP as well. So a lot of the world is going, hey, China, what have you done? Right. And China's like, "Uh oh, we're a deer in the headlights. This is trouble. We've got internal problems within China. We've got external problems with the United States and, you know, especially the United States. Very angry at China. And uh, this could be the end of CCP. So China goes, what about Japan? What about Japan? What about Nanjing? What about all those sex slaves in World War II? Like World War II, that was World War II. We're talking 1989. Actually, they started doing this in the early 90s because at first it was total defensive on after Tiananmen Square. You know, the Chinese Communist Party's like, uh-oh, we're in a jam. Um, and so then it took them a while to get their feet up under them and, and quell internal dissent. And then finally they're like, God, we gotta, we've got to, uh, we need decoys. And they started popping chaff, right? Chaff was, what about Japanese? What about Japanese World War II sex slaves? And what about Japanese and Nanjing? What about all these things? So before the early nineties, nobody, all these World War II veterans, you ask any of them, there's some still alive. Did you hear about Nanjing or any of that before that time? And the answer is always no. And actually, I dug into it, and my team dug into it in great detail in the U.S. archives and whatnot. It did happen. There was a massacre there for sure. But it was actually a lot more complex than people uh, seemed to realize. A lot of that was fighting, for instance, between KMT, Kunmintang, and the communist forces in Nanjing. A lot of the deaths were clearly caused by them. And then some were clearly caused by Japanese, right? But the Japanese came out with this this book called The Rape of Nanjing by Iris Chong, who shot herself in the head eventually. Uh, I've got her autopsy actually here in my office. Uh, she uh, 
she was clearly recruited by CCP by a guy named Ignatius Thing. He lives in Cupertino, uh, California. Uh, we've done huge amounts of, I could talk about this for days, but we did a huge amount of research on this. She was recruited. You can, the thing, a lot of the things I'm telling you, you can find with web searches now. You can just like, uh, you know, web search Iris Chong and, and, um, Ignatius Ding as an example. And you can see at some point she talks about being recruited by them. And so, you know, they're telling, you know, this story about this terrible rape that the Japanese did and all these things. And she says, I was reduced to tears. And, you know, and the next thing you know, she's their huge best selling author, which was a sponsored book, clearly <laughs> and obviously, right? So, and then everybody's like, yes, it's this book. It's just, and then a lot of the book was proven false. Right? I actually went to Nanjing researching this in China, right? And they got this museum there, Tad. It's like freaking $50 million museum or something. I don't know. It's, let's put it this way. It's a lot more than $10 million U.S. dollars. It's a huge museum. It's like Disney World level quality. I'm going through this museum, and I'm the only white guy there. So when I was showing up at the museum, it was just like busload after busload of kids getting off. You can tell they were school groups, right? And they're all wearing, like, this group's all wearing red shirts, this group's always wearing blue, this one's wearing yellow or whatever, and they got the flags up because they got their tour guys. So they're taking all these kids to their inculcation and through the, uh, and through the, the this giant museum in Nanjing. And by the way, I've checked, that museum was actually tiny back in the early 90s. It's huge now. And so, uh, and you, you go, and so, uh, it's just huge amounts of kids, and I'm about halfway through the museum, right? And I'm like, man, I'm glad this is over. I'm getting tired, man. This is a big museum. It was only like halfway through. I was like, unbelievable. This is like, it took me hours to get through there, and it was all it was all designed to create hatred, right? I'm I'm a writer. I study emotions. You have to know how to create emotions and that sort of thing as a writer, just as a painter has to know how to create different colors out of his palette, right? And this is important what I'm telling you. As a writer, I have to know how to create emotions and characters and that sort of thing. I don't write fiction, but when I'm even when I'm writing nonfiction, like let's say combat stuff, I have to know how to recapture that scene, how to create these colors out of my palette, right? Of the things that I've witnessed. How do I make fear? How do I make anger? How do I make love? How do I make the sense of loss? Well, I can tell you how you make hatred. Right. How you make hatred is a very specific formula. Right. There's seven you know, primary uh, emotions, you know, anger, disgust, uh, fear, happiness, sadness, surprise. Right. These are basic primary colors of emotions. Right. There's two primary colors of emotion that if you can mix these two together successfully, you will create hatred every time. It's like H2O, hydrogen, two of those and one oxygen and you got yourself some water, right? And so what you do is you add anger and you add disgust at the same time and you have hatred. And then hatred is like a little breeder reactor, so depending on the culture, the target culture and some other things, but it can actually breed and grow on its own at that point. And, and so what China does is they, with these museums, I've been to many of their museums, like in Malaysia and all just all over in China and, and, uh, Korea and, and, and they're just, I call them hate factories. I actually wrote a big article about it a few years ago and I called it the, uh, the hate farm. But what they do is they, they create hate that if you listen, if you go through that museum and you're not there as I am as an academic, if you're not there coming through 
and trying to figure out how they're making this machine work and you're just a young, say, 16, 17, 18-year-old student or just anybody, really, you would probably walk through there and by the time you're finished, you will hate Japanese, right? And and then they and then they end it always with we only want an apology. It's like the Japanese have apologized many times, <laughs> you know. And it's like and, and so they just keep dragging it out. Like in Korea, we only want an apology. They've apologized over twenty times, you know, right? But they're like, yeah, but that wasn't sincere. You know, that wasn't sincere. You didn't give us a kidney, right? Oh, you didn't give us your other kidney too, right? Uh, so they're constantly, you know, demanding apologies. And you got to understand this apology. You got, you've got to understand. Again, I want to reiterate. I've spent more than half of my life uh, in 75 different countries outside of the United States, and I've lived from coast to coast in the United States, like in the army or in school or in business. For instance, I grew up in Florida. I lived in North Carolina, uh, Ohio, uh, Massachusetts, California. I went to school there twice, right? So I lived with a lot of American cultures as well. And, and, and different cultures react differently to different uh, things. For instance, um, uh-oh, is my dog, can you hear him? Um, I do. Uh, there's a political fight going on back there, sounds like. Yeah, let me, let me shut my front front. Can we get to you know what kind of fight you've seen there in Hong Kong and oh yeah how it's in looking in Hong Kong in Hong Kong uh, the, you know the fight in Hong Kong is to separate well okay if you call it a separatist movement that's called incredibly radical in Hong Kong uh, but they clearly do not want to be under the control of the Chinese Communist Party that's like that's like submitting to Nazis literally that is zero exaggeration whatsoever. The Chinese government has already kidnapped booksellers in Hong Kong. They kidnapped booksellers, and they kidnapped them and took them to China because they were selling books that the Chinese Communist Party didn't like. Can you imagine that? Like, you know, basically kidnapping some Barnes and Noble, you know, elite and taking them over to Beijing. And they kidnapped people from Hong Kong, and they kidnapped booksellers right out of Thailand, not Taiwan, but Thailand. So again, that would be like. Oh, some booksellers in New York decide to go on vacation in Thailand, and China kidnaps them and takes them back to Beijing. And not only that, also kidnaps them straight out of New York too, right? That's how serious it is. And so, uh, they, you know, the the Chinese uh, China has no freedom of speech. Hong Kong is very free on speech, uh, and so. Um, in, in some ways, you know, Hong Kong is quite free on speech, actually, and, and, and a relatively very free uh, country. And uh, no country, you no know, people will say, it's not a country, you don't study your history. It's like, I get it. I can talk about it. Ninety, 99% of the people that bring that up don't have any clue what they're talking about, and they're just, they're just reflexively spouting actually talking points that have been put inside of their brain by China. Because this information war ecosystem is so vast, you don't even realize you're in it. And so, but what, how is it situated right now in Hong Kong? There is clearly an insurgency. It's been an insurgency since at least July of 2019. I landed in June of 2019, about two weeks after the, the flare-up happened. I Because re- I was here in my office, and I said, hey, that's a serious deal. Uh, they're in general civil unrest at a minimum. And so two weeks into it, I jumped on an airplane. And uh, and later on, it's funny, when I first went, some people were like, oh, you missed it. And I'm like, no, actually, if it's what I think it is, that was the that was the kickoff. 
right? And But I'm not sure what it was then, but I thought that it might be going into insurgency. And so that was why I flew there to look. And within about a month, I said, okay, yeah, this is an insurgency, actually. It's not even civil unrest. The difference between the, – the, a key difference between insurgency and civil unrest is, okay, let's talk about protest. And protest, people protest all the time. You know, your wife protests, hey, fix the roof or whatever. That's protest, fix the roof, everything's good, right? And not that she should have to tell you to fix the roof, but you know what I'm getting to. <laughs> so – but – uh uh but then in general civil unrest so in other words that'll be like a specific group or a specific person let's say that are protesting about something specific like teacher pay right or like working hours something like that so that's just protest those are normal protests are a sign of a healthy society actually because we have to protest that's why we have a first amendment you know what i mean it's like it's, it's like the first amendment right and so mm-hmm. uh and so, so that we can keep our country healthy by being able to pressure valve and reese by protesting and getting little things changed, adjusting all the time. And so, but then you get into general civil unrest, and that's where you get a huge cross section of people. And it was over a million people in Hong Kong. And then the second protest in June was about 1.7 million. It was estimated. You got to keep in mind the population is only 7.5 million, right? So you got less than 8 million people and almost 2 million people show up. That's like a quarter of the people. Think about that mm-hmm. on the scale of the United States. That would be like, I don't know, something like 80 million people show up for a protest. Seriously. Florida's only got like 22 million people. That would be like almost like almost four Floridas showing up for a protest. You know what I mean? So when that happened in Hong Kong, uh, I was like, oh, wow, that's at least general civil unrest. And general civil unrest, you it'll be a sizable proportion of the of the uh, country of the demographics of that country or region and you know different age groups different professions that sort of thing and they will generally in most cases they'll have a bigger problem set of things that they're complaining about right it's like fix the roads fix this fix the judiciary you know the police brutality all these different things so you got to very disparate group of people cross section who are complaining about a lot of different things, right? So that's general civil unrest. Now the key difference is in civil unrest is they still see the government as legitimate, right? In other words, you're still my government. You just got to fix some stuff. You know what I mean? We're getting tired mm-hmm. of you, but you're still ours, right? Uh, now fading into an insurgency. You know, because it's like a continuum, like a Roy G. Biv continuum here. You start fading into insurgency, and that's when more and more people are saying, you're not even my government. You're so bad that we want to change the government, like completely throughout the government, maybe throughout the government and keep the system or maybe just completely change the system or maybe change the system and the people. You know what I mean? So often when you want to change out all the people, you want to change out the system too because – if you didn't have this messed up system to begin with, you would have had checks and balances to start with, right? And so, so yeah, so when I got to Hong Kong at first, it was clearly at least general civil unrest because it was a huge cross-section of people, and they were complaining about a lot of stuff. Now, the, you know, you'd see the five demands on the news. It would be like, you know, extradition bill, investigate the police, you know, blah, 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 right? But that, those are just talking points. When you get that, that, you know, so you can hold your hand up and go five demands, but you really get on the ground and it's like, 
500 demands, right? And it's like it's like it's a it's a it's a real much larger uh, problem set. And they're saying that the police are illegitimate, and the only reason you're my police is because you got a gun and I don't, right? And so I mean that's the bottom line. And so you've got a lot of the a lot of the people now no longer see the government as legitimate. They still want to keep a lot of the basis of the government intact, but they want to change some basics of the government. For instance, universal suffrage. You know, they want uh, not to go into that. But the bottom line is, it's an insurgency, and this is where a sizable portion of the of the population. You know, uh, there's no set definitions of these things like defining art, but where some very large proportion of the population no longer sees the government as legitimate and they're willing to do something about it and they can do something about it and they're doing something about it. That's when you get into insurgency and that's what Hong Kong is in. But when you, all these people, these protesters, not the protesters, but the law enforcement that are on the streets, like from all your videos, and I've seen you in some altercations or, you know, verbal, I've seen you get emotional and animated. I mean, are all of those law enforcement folks, are they all for the CCP? Or, any, or is there anybody there with the Hong Kong government that's fighting for the people of Hong Kong? Uh I'm sure – I mean there's 38,000 people in the police force, and so it's hard to imagine that they're all really just pro-CCP. There's probably spies in there. There's probably people that are just – they need the money or they're confused because they're 23 years old or something, and they're just like this whole world is now happening on my plate, and I really don't have the tools to process it yet because I'm young. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh, and so um, so I, you know, there's 38,000, so I'm sure they cross the spectrum. Right. Uh, and by the way, if you if you're talking about the video where I was talking when I was uh, shouting at Bradley Wright on New Year's Eve, which went completely viral in Hong Kong, just my post had one hundred and twenty thousand views. But that was the smallest part. It actually got picked up all over Hong Kong news. So I wouldn't doubt if it was. Was he the British guy? Yeah, he's the British guy. Okay. But I wasn't I wasn't out of control. The people that know me realized I was doing that for he is the guy. He's a British subject, but he's one of the commanders on the Hong Kong police force. So I was calling him a British traitor, and I was doing that. First of all, I am angry at him. He is a traitor. There's no question about that. He is the commander of the police unit in Mong Kok Police Station who has done a lot of crimes right in front of me and my cameras. But what I was actually doing, even though I was – yes, I was actually angry at him, and I still am. Uh, but the uh, – what I was, what, what happened? That was New Year's Eve. He was walking down Nathan Road. There was some fighting going on, and he was trying to show he's in charge. And I'm like, that's the guy right there. I keep seeing him, and he's the commander of these police who keep doing brutalities against. And there's, you know, all, all these uh, young and really excellent protesters. And then uh, there was huge amounts of press there, and that was when I said, oh, this is it. Perfect opportunity to steal his wind. And I was just using, uh, you know. Basically, guerrilla warfare is what I was doing. So when I'm shouting at him, look at the British traitor. I was shouting yeah. at him, the British uh-huh. traitor. And, you know, that's coming from me in a, with an American accent, right, for a British commander in Hong Kong. So a guy with an American accent shouting, British traitor, British traitor. You know, I was I was intentionally targeting and trying to – and it worked. It, he reacted. He came over to me. And he, yeah. you couldn't you couldn't make this up. Look at the video. He's like, I'm just doing my job like you're doing yours. 
in like half of Hong Kong is like, just doing your job. That's what Nazis said. And we hanged them, right? Yeah. 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 So, so, so what I was doing was, yeah, I'm angry at him. Don't, don't be, uh, there's no way to, uh, but I was in complete control and it was theater as well. It was like my acting was great because I was actually really angry. Yeah, it uh, was. But, but, but I'm, but I was in complete control. Uh, but I mean, so when you're acting and you're actually are angry, it looks authentic because it is authentic. But I was actually the, the, the thing that, I mean, but being angry, I, I got very good control of my emotions. You know, I didn't make it through special forces and all that without having solid control over my emotions. But this was a perfect opportunity. And if, if another opportunity comes like that, you might see me on television doing something like that again. And I'm just doing the things that often that I don't like when protesters do, which is make a scene just to get press and call attention. But look at what I did when I did that briefing just a few days ago to Senator Rubio's staff and some others. They are now like, what? You mean British police are on the British British subjects are on the Hong Kong police force? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And so now all of a sudden, because of that video, that scene I made with him, uh, like now a huge like you like you now realize that there's british um police on the police force he was right there right on the video super yeah. close it's i'm only doing my job calm down i'm only doing my job like you're doing yours you saw what he said and uh so yeah so if you see me do that in the future and i'm arrested or whatever uh and i'm actually surprised they did not arrest me that time and others uh but i'm fighting i'm fighting back i'm fighting back with information uh you know this is a the, the the combat a lot of the combat that's going on right now is information warfare and we can play it just like they can and we want to smash back those communists because for every reason in the world i'm just super proud that the united states and and, and a little unhappy too but the unhappy that the united states is the only country really standing up to china i'm super proud that we are doing it i'm not as proud that we're not doing as hard as we should uh I'm proud that we're the only one, but I'm also un- upset that we're the only one. Where's yeah, Germany? Yeah. Where's all these Europeans? You know, I lived six years in Europe. Where's, where's, I, I speak German fluently, by the way. And so, I mean, we're, we're all the Germans always moralizing to Americans and others like, America did this, America did that. It's like, yeah, where are you on China? You're making trade deals. France just made another trade deal with China. And Israel, whom I have supported through the years and steadfast supporter of Israel. And, but at the same time, Israel's cozying up to China. What's all this never again stuff? It's only go for you because, you know, when you're talking right now, there's a genocide going on against the Tibetans, and it's been going on for years, and the Uyghurs and others, right? And yet, but, oh, but it's okay with them. Never again meant us, right? You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, and the United States is the only country that has just come out and said, no, get back. Get back, China. Yeah, right. Step back, or we're going to punch you again. You know, and um, and we need to. Uh, we need to. We need to play a harder game than we're. I'm glad that we've stepped up to the plate finally, but we need to play even harder. Well, Michael, this is great, great info, uh, great intel. Uh, anything? We're up on time now. Uh, what, anything you would you just like to say in closing? Well, thanks for having me on again, Thad. When I uh, I'm taking, I'm not on a break. I'm taking care of some uh, admin stuff. I've been gone for about six months. I'm going to go straight back to Hong Kong. If you want to do something from literally from the street at some point, we can do it live and you'll hear the fighting 
all around me, and you can see it in the video. It's it's crazy. You know, the Chinese communists are trying to take Hong Kong, and we need to stop them. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I I, I really appreciate that offer. I'd like to make that happen. Your, I'll put the links to your Instagram, to your uh, Facebook page. I mean, by the way, we can't cover it all, but I, I, everybody listening, man, you just put some great information up about PTSD. Awesome stuff, very practical stuff. Um, you've got yeah, your videos on Instagram are just incredible. And then your blog, um, you were just on the, um, what was it? Uh, John no, the American Thought Leaders. Is that is that John oh, Bassler? Yeah. Okay. American so, Thought Leaders. I do John Bassler show with Gordon Chong and John Bassler twice a week, uh, which is a I love that show. It's syndicated to 130 radio stations. I've listened to it for years, and then they invite and then Gordon Chong came over to Hong Kong. And he's like, "Hey, would you consider being on the John Bassler show?" I was like, "Are you kidding? I love your show." Yes. It's like yes, for sure. I, I listen to it all the time because it's, it's just a great show. And then American Thought Leaders with uh, Epoch Times, uh, Jan Jakelik, he's Polish, by the way, or Polish descent. And uh, so it was good talking about solidarity with him. But that was a really great interview we did about um, maybe six weeks ago or something like that, but it's on the air now. Yeah. It's a very good interview. Just look up, like, American Thought Leaders and my name, Michael Jan. I'll put a link to it, it in the notes, too, because that, that was some really good detail because it was long. And I really appreciate your time, Michael. Thanks for what you're doing. And I mean, really, for me, Thanks for the history lesson because a lot of the, a lot of this I didn't know. Yeah, man, it just takes a long time. The reason I know it is because this is my battlefield, right? So I've been studying it for years. And as you know, like when I was in the army, what are the what are the old all the old really successful and excellent soldiers? They're like study history, study history, study world religions, and study history because if you want to know what's good, what do the old people always tell us? If you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, study what happened yesterday. Yes, so, that's right. So I, so I study. Now I'm getting to be one of those old people, and I'm passing on the lessons. It's true. You just got to study history, and then you'll know what's happening tomorrow. <laughs>